Welcome to the Jungian Anthology podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Episode one. Uh, this podcast is going to be made up of lectures from the last four decades of seminars recorded at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Uh, and this archive is one of the largest of its kind in the world, a rich and unique educational resource for anyone with an interest in the well-being of the individual, the community, and the culture. Speakers include internationally renowned presenters whose work is at the forefront of psychological thought, including Robert Moore, June Singer, Murray Stein, John Beebe, Anne Belford Ulanoff, Donald Kalshed, Andrew Samuels, Ashok Beatty, Jean Shinoda Boleyn, and many others. Uh, we will be making selected seminars from the archive available on the podcast, probably lectures that are one or two hours long. Uh, and then larger sets and series are available for purchase for instant download at audio.youngchicago.org. Uh, you can also go to our website for any more information about the Young Institute. Um, what we offer in terms of videos, uh, audio downloads, and also in-person classes and training programs. Our website is www.youngchicago.org. So, for the first lecture, we have Chrysalis, The Psychology of Transformation by Marion Woodman. Toronto analyst Marion Woodman explores the body-spirit relationship the withdrawing of projection, gender issues, and the surrender of ego to the self as these themes relate to personal transformation. Recorded at the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago on October 5th, 1984. Marion Woodman is a Canadian mythopoetic author and women's movement figure. She is a Jungian analyst trained at the C.G. Young Institute in Zurich, Switzerland. She is one of the most widely read authors on feminine psychology, focusing on psyche and soma. She is also an international lecturer and poet. Woodman is author of Addiction to Perfection and The Ravaged Bridegroom. So without anything else from me, here's the lecture. It's always a pleasure to welcome Marion back to Chicago. She's been here a couple of times. I'm sure many of you have heard her. Um, some of you who haven't heard her in person have probably read her books. Um, she's uh, one of the more prolific Jungian analysts in this, on this continent. And in the past uh, two or three years, she has uh, published two books that I think have made really a tremendous impression on a lot of people on with, within the professional community of the Jungian world, as well as the much wider community, and particularly her second book, I think, Addiction to Perfection, which uh, from reports of people that I've been working with who have read it, feel that it really speaks exactly to them at many points, and they can, they can relate to Marion the person in, in the style of her book also. I think you'll find that if you read um, both of her books, the first one was called The Owl Was a Baker's Daughter, a very imaginative title. Both books, in a way, deal with uh, problems that Marion has confronted in her practice, particularly with women patients who've had eating disorders, but they really address a much wider range of issues that's applicable to all of us who are addicted to perfection in one way or another, or uh, who 
suffer from uh, guilt that we aren't perfectly slender and perfectly athletic and we wheeze a bit in the morning and we aren't looking better and better as we grow older and feeling better and so on. And I think her, her approach is very psychological and very human. I'm sure you'll feel that tonight when she speaks to you also. Uh, Marion is a graduate of the uh, Institute in Zurich uh, and now has her analytic practice in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where her brother is also a Jungian analyst in practice, Fraser Boa. And uh, I'll just put in a little plug for Fraser. Fraser, in a former lifetime, was a filmmaker. And he has recently composed a series of how many? Six? Six? Ten? Ten one-hour? Ten two-hour films in which uh, Mary Louise von Franz of Zurich interprets dreams. And we hope to have those or some of them at least, if you're in for a marathon, we can get them all, but we hope to have some of them <laughs> at some point down the line when Fraser finally puts the finishing touches on this. It sounds fascinating to me, and I'm sure it will be a big draw for all the members of the Institute. Tonight, Marion's going to speak about transformation, and I can't think of anybody that I would recommend more highly to speak on that subject. <laughs> Marion? It is a pleasure to be here and to see so many familiar faces. The uh, workshop tomorrow will be uh, quite practical. I will tonight put forth the ideas uh, that I have come up with around transformation, death, and rebirth. And uh, then tomorrow, I would like to spend most of the workshop and on Sunday, uh, I will talk very briefly and we will dialogue the material. So that uh, in the second part tonight, we will certainly be dialoguing because I think that's the only real value in lectures. And uh, then tomorrow we will dialogue and do body work in the workshop. So in the second part of the lecture tonight, I, would, I will probably be working more with the body, uh, talking more about the body, than in the first part. So those of you who are particularly interested in the body, uh, stick it out and we'll eventually get there. Uh, I'm infamous for my cyclic way of going around things, and uh, I can't uh, work any other way but in a cyclic pattern. It's not possible for me to go in a linear line. Uh, I used to do that and nothing ever worked for me in terms of the imagination or in terms of creativity within the lecture situation itself. So uh, if you can just remember that we're going on a spiral and uh, gradually the spiral gets bigger and gradually, hopefully, the bell rings and the whole spiral will resonate for you. I'd like to begin by just sharing with you a story of my own childhood. If my, I suppose I was about three, and I was out in the garden and saw this great black lump in the garden. 
and uh, terribly excited about lumps and uh, ran to my father with this thing and uh, he said it would be a butterfly and I just thought that was wild crazy magic and my father was given to rather practical jokes and uh, so I thought you know that's just another joke however he insisted that we take this butterfly uh, this lump and pin it onto the kitchen curtain so every morning I would rush down to see the butterfly and of course every morning there was a lump so uh, I finally gave up on the lump and then one morning I distinctly remember sitting there with my doll eating shredded wheat and became aware that there was a presence in the room I was quite frightened and then my eyes went on to the curtain and here was this magnificent butterfly its wings were still wet it was luminous it was just quivering on the curtain and of course the chrysalis was at the side and that was my first experience of death and rebirth a moment of magic that has stayed with me all my life and for this reason uh, my imagination is cycling around this whole concept of the chrysalis the time in the chrysalis what goes on in the chrysalis is really what we're going to be talking about tonight and then the moment of release and transformation <clears throat> it's the twilight zone between three worlds past present and future the precarious world of transformation within the chrysalis part of us is looking back yearning for the magic we have lost part is glad to say goodbye to our mucked up past part looks ahead with whatever courage we can muster and what I'm trying to capture in this lecture tonight is those of you who are in analysis know it well those of you who are experiencing life know it well when you are you're, you have left your past life you have no idea what's ahead and you're just trying to hold things together in the middle part is excited by the changing potential and most sit still not daring to look either way individuals who consciously accept the chrysalis whether in analysis or in life's experience recognize that it comes with every new spiral of growth its suffering is the suffering of paradox in Eliot's journey of the magi one of the wise men describes his journey to Bethlehem all this was a long time ago I remember and I would do it again but set down this set down this where we led all that way for birth or death 
There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. If we accept the paradox, we are not torn to pieces by what seems to be intolerable contradiction. There are two points of view involved. If you can hold both at the same time, you have paradox. If you're looking at the either or, which is the animus way of looking at it, then you're into contradiction and being torn apart. If we can hold the tension and allow our little circuit to give way to a larger circumference. It is the people who are splayed in the chrysalis who are in trouble. Stuck in a state of stasis, they clutch their childhood toys, divorce themselves from the reality of their present circumstances, and sit hoping for some magic that will release them from their pain into a world of light, a make-believe world of childhood innocence. Rather than take responsibility for their own lives, rather than accept the challenge of growth, they cling to the rigid framework that they have constructed or that has been assigned to them from birth and attempt to stay fixed. That attitude is against life, for change is a law of life. To remain fixed is to rot, particularly if it be in the Garden of Eden. Why are we so afraid of change? Why, when we go into analysis, because we are desperate for change, why do we become even more desperate when transformation begins? Why do we lose our childhood faith in growing? Why do we cling to the old instead of submitting ourselves to new possibilities, to undiscovered worlds in our own bodies, minds, and souls? We plant our fat amaryllis bulb, we water it, give it sunlight, watch the first green shoot, the rapidly growing stalk, the buds, and then marvel at the great bell flowers tolling their hallelujahs to the snow outside. Why should we have more faith in an amaryllis bulb than in ourselves? Is it because we know that the amaryllis is living by some inner law, a law that we have lost touch with in ourselves? We are living in 1984, a date which has an ominous ring for those of us who have read George Orwell. Some of us read the book 30 years ago and remember the zero at the bone sensation, even imagining a machine in our room that could expose our private life to Big Brother. We felt raped while reading the book and firmly finished the last page saying, no, 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 that can never be. 
1984 seemed so far away, and that vision of demonic machines so outrageous that we trusted we'd never live to see it. But the echoes of Orwell were never quite silenced. And here we are in 1984, living with machines quite capable of tuning into Big Brother at any moment, and computers that can reveal our life story with one push of a button, insofar as button pushing can reveal our life story. Now, I know that computers are fascinating and efficient in their own mechanical way, but a machine, however magnificent, has no soul, nor does it move with the rhythms of instinct. A computer may be able to vomit out the facts of my existence, but it cannot fathom the subterranean corridors of my aloneness, nor can it hear my silences, nor can it respond to the shadow that passes over my eye. It cannot compute the height and depth and breadth of the human soul. When society deliberately programs itself to a set of norms that have very little to do with instinct, love, or privacy, the person who sets out to become an individual trusting in the dignity of his own soul and the creativity of his own imagination has good reason to be afraid. He is an outcast, cut off from society and to a greater or lesser degree from his own instinct. As he works in the silence of his cocoon, he often wonders if he is crazy. At the same time, he knows he would be crazier if he gave up his faith in his own journey. He keeps Blake's proverb pinned to his wall. If a fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. <coughs> Another reason for fearing the chrysalis lies in our cultural loss of containers. Our society's emphasis on linear growth and achievement alienates us from the cyclic pattern of death and rebirth, so that when we experience ourselves dying, or dream that we are, we confuse the symbolic and actual worlds. Primitive societies were close enough to the natural cycles of their lives to provide the containers through which the members of the tribe could experience death and rebirth. To quote from Van Gennep, in such societies, every change in a person's life involves actions and reactions between sacred and profane, actions and reactions to be regulated and guarded so that society as a whole will suffer no discomfort or injury. You see, the person knew who he was in the society. He was a boy. He went through the transition. He recognized himself then as a man. So the transitions provided exactly for where the person was in the society. Now, I think we have some rites of passage, but they're pretty strange ones. Uh, I think, for example, that the driver's license 
is one of our rites of passage. Um, if you, we, we may talk about that in the, uh, in the uh, second part of the program, but it, we, if you think of our, our society, most of us don't know where we are in it. And it's my experience that many are uh, thinking of women here who are attempting to go through the menopausal transition end up going through the puberty transition. They become quite adolescent. They have the emotions of an adolescent. The adolescent that they were never came into her own body. She did not make that Passover into her own feminine relationship to her body, to the cosmos. So that when it comes time to surrender herself to something larger, as at the menopausal period, the body just goes into a spasm. And she, she has to go through something quite violent in order to come into her body, in order to let it go. Am I making myself clear there? It's as if she has to claim her body own it, inhabit it, cherish it before it will allow her to surrender to let the self come through. <clears throat> now the male initiation was very different from the female initiation in the primitive tribes. The male was finding himself in the community and the rites were set up for him to find where he belonged in that hierarchy. The woman's rights were very different. She was becoming a member of a cosmos. In fact, they often used to uh, make scars on her belly around the navel so that her navel became the center of the earth and she became the goddess through which life would come. So that her connection at puberty initiation was very different from the male. Uh, the idea with the boys, of course, was to cut them off from the mother, make them warriors. The woman's was very different. Uh, about the women, Bruce Lincoln says, rather than changing women's status, initiation changes their fundamental being. A woman does not become more powerful or authoritative, but more creative, more alive. The pattern of female initiation is thus one of growth, of magnification. Lovely word there, magnification. My soul doth magnify the Lord. An expansion of powers, capabilities, experiences. This magnification is accomplished by gradually endowing the initiant with symbolic items that make of her a woman. For example, jewelry, poetry, music, myths, or scars on her body. The scar scarification is meant to provide an intensive experience in the sense of intense pain endured and an enduring record of that pain presented at all times thereafter. 
The person is rendered unique. Through this magnification, the woman steps into the cosmic arena. She is given the water of life with which she nourishes the cosmic tree. <coughs> Rituals did not change the way people lived. They were meant to give meaning to life. See, the whole idea of a ritual was that, and is, in the church, that the individual enters sacred space, knows that it's sacred space. See, in our society, there's this terrible confusion of sacred and profane, so that nothing is really sacred and nothing is really profane. So that they enter into this sacred space, they go through the death and resurrection of the God. They contact the archetype within themselves. Having gone through that, and as they did in the old theater, they went through the catharsis of fear, hate, love, all those feelings. And having gone through the catharsis, through the death, came out on the other side with new energy. Then they left that sacred space so that there wasn't the confusion of archetype and individual as there is in our society. I mean, if you listen to children talk, they hardly know the difference between Michael Jackson and God take it one step further, Michael Jackson, me, and God. They, they, there is not sufficient ego for them to know the difference, literally, between themselves and an archetype. And, uh, for example, the chap who killed John Lennon, the identification with Lennon was absolute. So the ritual then didn't change the way people lived, but it was meant to give meaning to life. Human beings' activities were thus connected to the divine. What would otherwise be boring drudgery was invested with a meaning that transcended animal survival. In more sophisticated societies, the church and the theater became ritual containers. Within the safety and confines of the mass, the individual could surrender himself to God, experience dismemberment, death, the descent into hell, and the resurrection of the spirit on the third day. He could experience the magnification of his own spirit in experiencing himself as sacrificer and sacrificed. If any of you have ever gone through a ritual where you sacrificed something you loved. You put yourself on the altar and you are sacrificing yourself so that you become sacrificer and sacrificed. I'm making that clear. Uh, it's, uh, I can talk more about that. It's a ritual that I do with a lot of my analysis and it's tremendously valuable. For example, if a woman loves a man and the relationship breaks and she cannot give him up and a year later she's still trying and she's still depressed 
and the minute she shuts her apartment door, she's in tears. If a ritual is gone through where she actually sacrifices something of that relationship that she loves, I mean, if she really does it, I don't mean that you just go through some kind of a ceremony, but if she actually goes through that, uh, she awakes the next morning in a very different space. <clears throat> if you're interested, we can talk more about that later. So like the primitive, he left the ritual with enhanced meaning, with a profound sense of belonging to a cosmos and to a community that respected that cosmos. The theater, too, provided controlled space for projections onto archetypes, for an empathetic response to violence, rage, love, fear, and for the cathartic release as the archetypal behavior worked itself through to its own tragic or comic nemesis. We have lost our containers, and chaos is come again. Without rituals to make a firm demarcation between the sacred and profane, we tend to identify with archetypes. We forget that we are human beings and allow ourselves to be inundated by the power of the gods and demons and usurp it for our own. Many people think life is a meaningless merry-go-round if they are not being transported by love like Charles and Diana, <laughs> or living for a cause like Mother Teresa, or dying for a dream like Martin Luther King. They measure their standard of behavior by comparison with figures who carry immense archetypal projections, Marilyn Monroe, Jimmy Dean, John Lennon. By identifying with an archetype, instead of remaining detached from it, they turn life into theater and themselves into actors on a stage, thus falling prey to demonic as well as angelic inflation. Without the container, they confuse the sacred and profane world. What I'm suggesting here is that without the container, the transformation can't go on. It's not safe enough. That if, you're, if you are really going to go through a death and rebirth transformation, you have got to create a chrysalis. I mean, can you imagine the caterpillar crawling into the chrysalis and going to mush before it's transformed? And most of us do go to mush in a transformation. The agony in there is horrific. And without the container, or it can be with another person, with an analyst, through the church, or however, but that container is crucial. <clears throat> we are in 1984, we are coming after Freud and Jung. And while poets and madmen had free access to their unconscious before those two giants, the world of the archetype is now an open market for the general populace without any ritual containment. If a person is blindly living out an archetype, 
he is not containing his own life. He is possessed, and his possession acts as a magnet on unconscious people in his environment. It can become a dangerous world where illusion and reality are fatally confused. Most people come into analysis because they are floundering. Life has lost its meaning. They are experiencing themselves as caterpillars crawling along, often quite successfully. But some deep intuitive voice is whispering, there's something I'm missing. I need a cocoon. I need to go back and find myself. Now, they may not quite realize that when caterpillars go into cocoons, they do not emerge as high-class caterpillars. <laughs> and they may not be prepared for the agony of the transformation that goes on inside. Nor are they quite prepared for the winged beauty that slowly and painfully emerges, but who lives by a very different set of laws than a caterpillar. Even more confounding is the fact that friends and relations who may be quite happy caterpillars have no patience with a silent, hard-edged chrysalis that is all turned in on itself, selfish, lazy, self-indulgent. You know, that's what they always say about people in analysis. They have even less patience with a confused butterfly who hasn't adjusted to the laws of aerodynamics. <laughs> Still, it is amazing how many ha happy caterpillars suddenly take the clue, design their own chrysalis, and find their own wings. Tonight I want to concentrate mainly on ego formation and ego surrender. Both are a lifetime process. I can merely point out certain guideposts certain crises that erupt, and ultimately will probably leave you with more questions than answers. The chrysalis is absolutely essential if we are to find ourselves. Nothing in our extroverted society supports introverted withdrawal. We are supposed to be doers, taking care of others, supporting good causes, <coughs> unselfish, energetic doing our Christian duty. So many analysts say that to me, you know, I should be down at the hospital reading to the blind. They shouldn't be here wasting my time in analysis. But you see, what they forget, there is one thing needful, and if you haven't got that one thing needful, the others don't matter. If we choose to be our loved ones may automatically assume we are doing nothing. You know, the person who's upstairs meditating or upstairs reading, you've all had this happen, I'm sure, when you were a child. Your mother calls up and says, what are you doing? And, she's, and you say, reading. And she says, well, come down here and do something. The, the, the whole business of being in our society, I think even reading is not being, but just being, meditating, uh, 
or being in nature, what, however you conceive of the word being, it is not really respected in our society. We begin to look at our primal muck when we come into analysis as it surface in dreams. All chaos starts to break loose inside, and we wonder what's the point of dredging up all this stuff. We argue with ourselves, I should be out there doing something useful. But the truth is, I can't do anything useful if there's no I to do it. I can't love anyone else if there's no I to do the loving. If I don't know myself, I cannot love myself. And if I do not love myself, my love of others is probably my projected need of their acceptance. I am putting on a performance in order to be loved. I fear rejection. If nobody loves me, I won't exist. But who are they loving? Who am I? That is what going into the chrysalis is all about. Undergoing a metamorphosis in order to be able to stand up and say, I am. The gnawing hunger, the incessant yearning at the core of many lives began at birth, or perhaps even in utero. In order to survive in a demanding environment where one or both parents projected their unlived dreams or nightmares onto their children, the infants gave up trying to live their own life. As little human beings with needs and feelings of their own, they were rejected. Their mystery was never considered. And so they grew up automatically thinking in terms of pleasing others. In other words, as adults, they have developed a charming persona, a mask they have created with infinite care a mask that may be at once their greatest blessing and their greatest curse. Outwardly, they may be brilliantly successful, but inwardly empty. They cannot understand why their intimate relationships are repeating a disastrous pattern, which they can recognize but can do nothing to stop. They dream they are actors, the spotlight is on them, but they can't remember the play they're in, let alone their lines. If their ego is barely formed, they may not even appear in their own dreams. They may recognize themselves as golf balls or little animals. As the transformation progresses, they tear off more and more veils until eventually, if they are lucky, they find their own abandoned child, sometimes in bulrushes, sometimes in straw in a barn, sometimes in a tree, but always in a forgotten place. That child has talents and feelings and potentials that are quite incongruous with the conscious situation. I always advise my analysands to let their child play when there is no one else in the house. 
I mean, I think you really have to go back and be that child and play. You know, it, with finger paints, whatever, and let the energy of the child come out. In, and his concentration will be very short, maybe only two minutes. Get a great huge piece of newspaper and, and let, because if, when that child starts to come, a piece of drawing paper that big is absolutely useless. I mean, just go one splat and it's finished. You need a big piece of newspaper and let the energy out. Dance, do whatever that child wants to do and let it mature. Otherwise, you just keep making a fool of yourself. Because it, it, he will keep slipping out in the most extraordinary places. <clears throat> Before leaving the persona, I need to point out that we all need at least one persona. Jung was once lecturing on the topic when a student accused him of being hypocritical if he used a persona. Jung said that he had just had a fight with Emma and he was still angry but that anger had nothing to do with the students nor their reason for getting themselves to the institute that morning. It was neither fair to himself nor to them to inflict that anger there. However, he said he intended to finish the fight when he went home. <laughs> Essentially, we must be conscious enough to know when we are using a persona and for what reason. Otherwise, we are seducing ourselves into identification with the persona and therefore unaware of our genuine feelings and unable to put them into action at the right time and place. The persona is necessary because people on different levels of consciousness respond to a situation with very different antennae and naively or deliberately making oneself vulnerable to psychic wounding without good cause is foolish. Christ warned against casting pearls before swine. <coughs> now to return to the child. <coughs> This motif takes many different forms in dreams. When the conscious ego is able to release repressed psychic energy or reconnects with unconscious body energy, it makes the decision on its own behalf. Then babies appear in dreams. If the ego maintains that connection, the child grows and is nurtured. If the conscious attitude falters or fails to act on the energy, the baby may appear mutilated, starving, or dead. It may simply disappear. <clears throat> Sometimes when the psyche is preparing to move on to a new level of consciousness, or the conscious attitude has found a new union with the unconscious, the dreamer may find himself or herself pregnant or a shadow or anima figure may be pregnant. Nine months later, there will be dreams of passing over into a new country or moving through difficult tunnels or subterranean holes or an actual birth dream appears. 
In my experience, I have found that individuals tend to repeat the pattern of their own actual birth every time they move through a birth canal onto a new level of awareness. For example, if their birth was straightforward, they handle Passovers with courage and mutual trust. If their birth was difficult, they become extremely fearful, manifest symptoms of suffocating, become claustrophobic psychically and physically. If their mother was heavily drugged, they come up to the point of Passover with lots of energy, then suddenly for no apparent reason stop and move into a regression and wait for someone else to do something. Often this is the point where old addictions appear, binging, starving, drinking, sleeping, overworking, anything to avoid facing the reality of moving out into a challenging world. Some of you may have some experiences uh, with cesarean birth or premature birth. I'm trying to collect some of those. If you have any suggestions about that, I'd be most interested. <clears throat> with the emergence of the ego, one often has to recognize that the I that has lived so far is minuscule compared to the I that is possible. Or that the I that has lived is a false I, confounded with false expectations, trying to live life backside front. Here's where consciousness of shadow comes in and the real conflict begins. Since the natural gradient for the psyche is toward wholeness, the self will attempt to push this neglected part forward for recognition. It usually contains great energy, the gold in the dung. In the Bible, it is the stone that was rejected that became the cornerstone. It manifests either in a sudden or subtle change in personality, or perhaps fanaticism, which the existing ego adopts in order to try to keep the new and threatening energy out. The neurotic is always one phase behind where his reality is. When he should be outgrowing childish behavior, he hangs on to it. When he should be moving on into maturity, he hangs on to youthful folly. He is never where he is, hanging on to a life he never loved or enjoyed because he wasn't there. See, that the healthy person is where he is. The neurotic is always someplace else. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say because if you think of people, Think of the times that you've prepared a beautiful dinner party and you've spent the whole yesterday shopping and today getting it ready and your friends come <clears throat> and they sit down and tell you what a marvelous time they had last Saturday night at these other people's place. <laughs> they had, had wonderful food and they tell you all about the wonderful food and there they are eating yours talking about the other persons. And they aren't there. Uh, think at, or think of that with yourself, you know, when you're sitting someplace and you know you're someplace else and the essence is not operating. There's no tuning fork. You're just sitting there. We cannot drop the tensions. 
We have to hold both arms on the cross <clears throat> in order to widen consciousness. That is, you have to hold the tension between what's past and what's ahead. If we reject one part of ourselves, we give up our past. If we reject the other part, we give up our future. We must hold on to our root and build from there. That root often appears as a psychic home, sometimes a summer cottage that the dreamer loves, or the country of his origin, or his ancestor's origin. The longing to go home must certainly be looked at symbolically, for it is often more than a longing for regression. It can be the one solid root that goes right through the life, and it is the point of genuine nurturance for spiritual growth. Tonight, because of time limitations, I am concentrating on the ego, circumventing insofar as possible the innuendos of problems of relationship and the pain of withdrawing projections. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow <clears throat> under empowered. See, when we pull our projections back, we take our own power back into ourselves. One point, however, I do wish to make about this. As the feminine side matures in the male and the female, Notice I'm using feminine, not in terms of uh, women, but the feminine principle in both men and women. As it matures, and with it, the creative masculine, the way I image this, the, the positive feminine moves ahead, the positive masculine moves ahead, and then the masculine may go a little ahead, and then the feminine, but they keep up with each other. As, as the femininity becomes more and more able to receive as the chalice, it can sustain a much, much stronger thrust from the masculine. So that it takes a very strong chalice to hold a strong masculine. So that the two mature together. And by positive masculine, I mean a masculinity that is out of the father. She is no longer pleasing daddy, or the man is no longer doing what daddy did. You know, in other words, just unconsciously following an old pattern, an old set of traditions. Uh, again, in the Christian myth, that would look like the Virgin Mary, the receptacle, bringing forth the divine child. The, the, the creative imagination comes through the feminine chalice. <clears throat> so as the feminine matures then, and with it the positive masculine, the instincts, feelings, needs become fondly differentiated, and a new sensitivity towards oneself and others evolves. If the psychic integration is being paralleled with physical integration and the body is becoming increasingly conscious, the body's symptoms must be acknowledged as a thermostat in the relationship. The feminine is not interested in abstract theories and logical reasons. Feminine wisdom comes out of the marrow of bone 
out of the suffering of experience. The fish that comes out of the gut, not out of the head. Like the primitive woman, the feminine makes the Passover into maturity when it experiences itself as part of the rhythms of nature, cosmic, at the same time looking straight at the reality of the here and now, the present that is instantaneously shifting so that what's right in one moment is wrong in the next. What's right with this person is wrong with another. So there's continual, instantaneous consciousness. You are responding all the time to what is right there with you. The mature feminine breaks away from the patriarchy and seeks union with the positive animus. Here's where real problems begin to develop in long-established relationships. The symbiotic twins are ripped apart. If the partner is not in analysis, the continual flux is exasperating. If, for example, the wife is in analysis, experiencing her feminine ego, well-grounded in her female body, her husband may be delighted, surprised, and shocked by her sexual abandonment. Then suddenly, consciousness may illuminate blocks in her body, or the self may begin to demand a new level of physical and spiritual relationship, in which case, the woman must look at her symptoms. This can happen to a man as well. He may become impotent. She may require a period of natu natural celibacy. The husband may experience this withdrawal as rejection. However, if the woman goes against her instinct, her body will manifest more intense physical symptoms will demand a celibate state until the problem is worked through on the spiritual level. Sexuality has to be differentiated from intimacy. If the two souls are not attuned, or if the self is demanding a new attunement on a different level, the partners may try to fool themselves into believing everything is all right. One or other may demand sexual intimacy, but the body does not lie. Its wisdom is not shallow. The conscious body will attempt to force the relationship onto a new spiritual level of intimacy, which can then be embodied at a very different level of sexuality. This Passover requires a magnification of the feminine in both partners if the relationship is to survive. Lashing out in frustration, fear, power, and self-pity only compounds the problem. Each partner has to realize that the other is wandering blind in unknown territory. That's God's country, and there one moves with faith. Now, I'd like to, uh, for the sake of the workshop tomorrow, take a, a big leap here and 
what I've talked about so far is the building of the ego. Now I would like to take a huge leap and talk about the surrender of the ego. When the self starts to move in and demands the surrender of the ego. <clears throat> when the Cinderella work has been accomplished in the kitchen, in, you know, in dreams, how you're always working in your kitchen, you are bringing in the instincts from outside, the chickens, the vegetables, the all, and each one I think has its own particular meaning. You do your Cinderella work. You put that into the fire. It is transformed with emotion and gradually something new begins to happen. So having taken off the feathers, cleaned out the entrails, cooked them and made them accessible to consciousness, the ego begins to stand firm. The instincts are being humanized. Mother and father no longer drive the car. The ego is driving its own car. The incessant sorting through actual cupboards and drawers has ceased. I don't know if you people do that, but my analysis are all the time sorting through drawers when they're in analysis. <laughs> Actually sorting. And they do it in dreams, of course, too. I mean, they're always in the stores trying to figure out what to buy, what to put energy into, what not to put energy into. But this incessant sorting goes on. And then one day they give it all to the Salvation Army. <laughs> Start fresh. What clothes to wear is no longer a constant frustration. I'm sure you know this in dreams as well, where you can find the top and you can't find the bottom, and they won't go together anyway, and then you find yourself doing the same thing in real life. The clothes just simply won't go together. And the shoes are even worse, because you wear one high-heeled red shoe and one flat rubber boot, which means, of course, that the standpoint's absolutely chaotic because you're looking at this situation with a high heel off the earth, red on one side, and a thumping rather rubber boot on the other. Now there comes a point where the boots more or less match. Or sometimes, of course, no shoes at all, which is the best really, because that means that the person is walking flat on the earth, there's a relationship to the ground, the standpoint is steady and taken from the instincts. Usually the self lets the ego enjoy this period of experiencing I am for some time. Then a huge bell rings. An alarm sounds. Or lightning strikes in dreams. Uh, that can take many forms. But those are three very common ones. The bell ringing, the alarm, the lightning. Sometimes it's a telephone. And physical symptoms begin to manifest in the body and something almost imperceptible begins to happen. Now, this, this kind of experience can happen through a loss of faith, uh, through a, a person being told they have a terminal illness, uh, loss of relationship, death in the family, many, many things can bring this about from the outside. Sometimes it just happens. Everything's going along fine, and you think, you know, I never had it so good. Thank you very much. But all of a sudden the bell rings, and 
some uh, I find the bell usually rings three or four months before something happens. That depends, of course, on how intuitive the person is. Sometimes it can ring quite a long time ahead, other times very short. In real life, we seem to be carrying on as usual, but a very clear inner voice may begin to comment, hinting that we are not doing exactly what we think we are doing. I always listen to the songs that I'm singing. Um, you know, I'll be opening the door, and uh, I always remember once singing, put your sweet lips a little closer to the telephone, to the tune of goodbye, I want to leave you, or something like that. <laughs> and, and I suddenly realized that I had one set of words that said, come closer, 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 and, let us, and, and the melody was, go away, I want to leave you. Uh, but the unconscious often reveals itself through the song you're just singing as you walk down the street. Very important. We may find ourselves uh, with a very ironic twist between our conscious and unconscious actions. If the ego has not sufficient strength and flexibility, it will panic and either regress to its former terrors of annihilation or regress to its former rigid framework. In either case, refusing to go through the birth canal. The ego now has to be strong enough to remain still at the center, concentrated stillness, so that it can mediate what is happening positively and negatively. It must hold a detached position. That's the position of the clown who has been through the suffering, recognizes it, feels it, but can stay outside and look at it. And he doesn't swing back and forth. Relying now on differentiated femininity in order to submit, relying now on discriminating masculinity in order to question. So that both sides have to operate. On one side, you use your highly developed femininity in order to receive what's happening because you don't want it to happen. On the other side, trying to discriminate with the masculine. Something immense begins to happen in the very foundation of the personality. And consciousness experiences the conflict as crucifixion. What the ego wants is no longer relevant. The old questions no longer have any meaning and there are no answers. There may be a few stricken whys, but they belong to the order of logic and discipline. And what is taking place is irrational beyond ego control. The ego, on some level, knows. It knows that what is happening has to happen. It knows that its personal desires have to be sacrificed to the transpersonal. It knows it is going to die. Some of you may have been through that in a relationship where you love the person very, very much, 
but you know it's not the right relationship for you and it starts to go wrong and you're clutching with one hand trying to to hold on to it at the same time knowing that it's being taken away and it should go it is a period of throbbing pain it is Lear howling on the heath brought to submission reunited with the daughter whose truth was her dowry at last he says upon such sacrifices my Cordelia the gods themselves pour incense it is Job covered with boils moving from do not condemn me show me wherefore thou contendest with me to the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom it is Christ in Gethsemane sweating blood moving from let this cup pass from me to thy will be done one of my male sons put it this way I was walking by the St. Lawrence one sunny summer day this is an act of imagination I thought I was going home instantly the sky darkened the earth grew cold I could not see with my eyes nor hear with my ears I was seeing inside hearing inside then I realized I was on ice floating suddenly not floating but being thrust by the power of the current the ice began to crack I leaped from one floe to another the ice cracking in front behind beside I thought I might die in the ice-cold water or be ground by the grating blocks and all the time I knew I was being propelled towards the ocean and I just kept jumping and praying please God please not yet not this time these situations whether in analysis or in life or both bring out profound religious questions is this God confronting me was I on the wrong track am I being forcibly turned around is there some almighty plan that is different from mine am I being forced to submit should I accept fate do I in fact have any free will is this God burning away the veils of illusion or am I facing the devil is he making one last stand to cheat me of my own life I've had anorexics get into this one where they seem to have the eating order under control the eating disorder under control and everything is going along and they uh, suddenly that well what happens of course they think they're fasting for God and the body is cleansing itself suddenly they're facing death and the devil and they they thought they were doing God's will and it's just yanked around like that and they hear this terrible voice laughing through the corridors laughing them to death but it's as if they are uh, working in every way to please God and then it just turns 
Psychologically, the questions are equally blistering. Is this the self demanding the ego sacrifice? Or is this the real face of the complex that has crippled me all my life? Just when I thought I could be free, there it is to destroy me. Everything I had fought so hard to bring to consciousness is now in question. Why do I suddenly wake up every night at the same time? Why do I feel this stifling pain? Why are my hands so weak? Am I really alone? I'm worse off now than I ever was. I'm back in the old pattern. I'm back in the matrix, back in the garden, recognizing the place for the first time. Is this who I really am? Is this who I have been running away from all my life? Psychologically, the ego, like Lear, Job, and Christ, is being penetrated. It's also penetrating to the archetypal ground of being in an effort to bring it to consciousness. Many people in our culture are attempting to suffer that transformation alone without any ritual container and without any group to support the influx of transcendent power. Like Eliot's Magi, they experience the birth as hard and bitter agony, like death, our death. They are no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. Without the container and without the group, the aloneness is almost intolerable. The individual ego has to be strong enough to build its own chrysalis in order to create a loving communication with its own inner symbols. Their luminosity brings the confidence and integrity, humor and illumination without which the ego could not survive, let alone expand. The childish ego, as opposed to the childlike, the childish ego, primitive and unconscious, cannot maintain the chrysalis. It wants to project everything and tunes in to a natural order. It wants to explain everything by magic. The childlike ego can hold the tension, pull in the projections, and ponder the inner mystery. At the transpersonal level, the symbols are simultaneously individual and universal. At that level, none of us is alone. New relationships bypassing the world of transitory disguise begin at that depth and from there relate back to the world in a totally new way. See, so many times the analysis will say, I have no friends, I've lost my relationship, I'm terrified, I, have, I wish I'd never committed this bloody mess in the first place. But if you can hold on until 
I'm sure some of you have had the experience of sitting down in a train or sitting even in a restaurant and somebody comes over to you to talk and they just suddenly open up their whole life story. The unconscious recognizes people who have been through it. And suddenly you have a whole new group of friends. Not, not the superficial, unconscious people perhaps, although I have lots of friends that I love to be with who are totally unconscious. <laughs> the marvelous, you know? We just have a wonderful time about recipes and babies and diapers and, uh, and you know, there's no big question of why and how and analytically what's going on, none of that. I think you need a lot of unconscious friends, quite frankly. <clears throat> Many of you will be familiar with Thomas Merton's autobiography, Seven Story Mountain, in which he describes, among other things, his conversion to Roman Catholicism and his life in the Trappist Monastery. What is essential, he said, speaking of his life as a monk, is not embedded in buildings, is not embedded in clothing, is not necessarily embedded even in a rule. It is somewhere along the line of something deeper than a rule. It is concerned with this business of total inner transformation. According to his own account, Merton completed his inner transformation on his Asian journey, standing barefoot in the presence of a giant Buddha. My Asian pilgrimage has purified itself, he wrote. I know and have seen what I was obscurely looking for. I have pierced through the surface and have gone beyond the shadow and the disguise. When Merton asked the Buddhist abbot, what is the knowledge of freedom? The abbot replied, one must ascend all the steps, but then, when there are no more steps, one must make the leap. Knowledge of freedom is the knowledge, the experience of this leap. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much for listening. The content of the lecture is copyright Marian Woodman. My name is Ben Law, the editor of the podcast. If you are interested in classes, training programs, downloads, or to make a donation to support the podcast, please visit our website, www.youngchicago.org. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, so please do not change it or sell it, but you are welcome to share it as much as you like. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.